Welcome to No Nonsense Nonprofit, where you can get actionable tips and tools to advance your mission work. I'm your host, Sarai Johnson, founder and principal consultant at Lean Nonprofit. I started Lean Nonprofit because nonprofits are businesses too, and I want to help you run yours like a boss. So enjoy today as we talk about No Nonsense Nonprofits. Hi, everybody. This is Sarai Johnson, your host of No Nonsense Nonprofit, brought to you by Lean Nonprofit. I'm the founder and principal consultant at Lean Nonprofit, which I founded to help nonprofits build better businesses so they can get bigger mission impact. Today, we're going to talk about fun with fraud prevention and financial controls, which doesn't sound like as much fun as I think it's going to be. And I may or may not be able to deliver on the fun promise, but I think that I can. Ultimately, I want to talk about this today because I think fraud is so important for nonprofits to understand, and we do not talk about it nearly enough. Fraud prevention matters for nonprofits. You will learn why today. You will also understand how to implement financial controls and what they are for your organization, and then how to assess the financial controls and fraud risk that you have in your organization right now. Fraud is something that happens way more than you would think it happens in organizations across the country, across the world. And we are going to talk today about how to spot some of the warning signs and how to prevent that from happening for your organization. Because nobody wants to have to tell donors, oh, the hard-earned money that you gave us has now been sucked away by somebody who was embezzling funds from us or, you know, it's sent to a shell corporation or other things that people do to siphon away the money that you get for your mission. So fraud is important. I'm going to talk a little bit right now about why fraud sometimes happens in nonprofit organizations and what makes us susceptible to this issue. First, nonprofits tend to be a little bit more informal than a for-profit business. They tend to be organized around um, a, a little bit of a different thing than a for-profit business, of course, which is our mission. So we're not always looking at just our profit centers, we're not always just looking at how much money we're bringing in. And honestly, our attention to the financials may or may not be at the level that it needs to be. So in a lot of organizations, we're probably just hoping that we're able to pay the bills every month. In others, it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, but it's ultimately run in a little bit more of an informal way than your typical for-profit business or even government agency. So it's important for us to understand that as we're going into this conversation, that even though we're, we have a bit of an informal approach to our work, we also have a complete obligation to make sure that we are maintaining the public trust. Because ultimately, our job is to find major returns for all of our stakeholders, which is, in fact, the entire community and the world. And that is why nonprofits have a tax advantage, because they're ultimately supposed to return the, the value um, of their work to the broader community. And that's why we don't have to pay taxes. So the other thing is that we lack knowledge and awareness about fraud as an issue itself. Uh, and if we even know about it, what to do about it. We tend to have undue levels of trust for people who work in our organizations and who do the work with us. We want to think everybody's there out of the goodness of our hearts and everybody's doing the best that they can and they may or may not know how to manage finances, but we just want to trust people because that's just within our nature as an organization. In for-profit businesses, it's a little bit easier to say like, well, we're just here to make money, so no offense, it's business. In nonprofits, we tend to get a little bit more attached to people and imbue them with levels of trust that that are probably on the border of inappropriate, if not really misguided. The other thing is that we are unwilling to discuss fraud risks. We think it's something maybe that's out of our purview or maybe outside of our understanding. Um, it's not something we want to discuss because we're sometimes afraid it might happen to us or we aren't aware when it does happen because nonprofits tend to hide that information 
from the public as much as possible, which, which is another issue in and of itself. We also in nonprofits have very complex revenue streams. Most for-profit businesses buy and sell things. They buy a product, they sell it for a higher price, or they provide a service and they get money for providing that service. Well, in nonprofits, of course, we have sometimes contracts, sometimes grants, sometimes donor revenue, sometimes event income, sometimes cash that comes in for various things. We have all kinds of stuff to manage as far as the money that's coming in our doors. And that is another thing that kind of creates this issue of not always being aware of fraud and understanding when it's happening and how to detect it. And then we are also, as nonprofits, are highly susceptible to negative publicity. When things break in the press about a nonprofit, especially when it comes to fraud, we are, let me say it as gently as possible, completely screwed. If somebody sees that you've lost money through embezzlement or through some other thing that happened fraudulently to your organization, they're less likely to give you money and they're less likely to trust you again. Bigger funders sometimes will pull their funds and you may be required to get an expensive audit or do other things to rectify the situation. It is not cool for nonprofits to have this happen. It's not great for any business, but in the case of a nonprofit, your money isn't just your own money. It's money that other people are giving you. And you absolutely are bound by your ethics and by your agreement with the public to manage those donor funds with the utmost of care and carefulness. So a couple of things that we can do as far as looking for fraud one, we want to really understand what fraud is. So here's a couple examples of what fraud is. The first type of fraud that I'm going to talk about is skimming. Skimming is taking a little or a lot of money for oneself. This could be through checking fraud. So it has been known to happen that somebody might open a checking account in the nonprofit's name at a different bank than they normally bank at, and then they will deposit checks in that bank account and freely take the money out as they wish to do so. So that is one way that it happens. Um, sometimes people will embezzle funds from grants. Uh, I have a story about that a little bit later when I talk about some examples of fraud in nonprofits. And sometimes people will skim cash. So if you, you have something um, where you are exchanging cash between people, then this is something to look out for. So for example, uh, where I used to work, we ran a farmer's market and we had a cash box because we needed to give change to people. We also used tokens for um, EBT sales, electron electronic benefits transfer or SNAP. Um, food stamps for those of you who are not in the know on the lingo for that. So we had tokens for that. People would come buy tokens and then use them at the vendor booth. Then the vendors would turn in those tokens. Well, sometimes people didn't think about those tokens as actual money. So they would um, sometimes be off on those counts. So, it, you know, it's not that somebody that I worked with actually did this, but it could have easily happened if we didn't manage those tokens really carefully. Cash skimming is one of the easiest things to do because it's just taking a little bit of money, especially before it's even accounted for. So look out for this one. If you're running an event and you don't have a system for managing and tracking all of the income that you're expecting from that event, um, or if there's some other kind of ad hoc thing where you're just like selling tickets or taking donations or whatever it might be, you want to really look out for that one. Skimming is really difficult to detect when no receivable is recorded on the books. So if there is no trail for accounting to follow in order to see whether money is missing, this is one of the easiest things to do. The next one is if no tangible exchange of goods or services happened with the payer. This would be an example, like let's say a donor gives you cash at an event. Uh, you ask for donations and somebody just gives you 50 bucks. That would be one thing that would be easy for somebody to pocket if they were not being ethical. 
Uh, it's also difficult to detect when cash is used as payment, especially when the two above circumstances are present. So it's a little harder to do with checks. Uh, it's a little harder to do, of course, with um, cards, but it still could happen either with checks or cards, although it's easiest to skim cash. So the next type of fraud is purchasing fraud. This is the absolute most common and easily perpetrated type of fraud in nonprofits. One thing that people do is abuse a corporate credit card and use it for personal purchases. Sometimes they might do expense reimbursement schemes. So they may turn in expenses for reimbursement that were actually used for personal purposes rather than for work purposes. Uh, people might exaggerate or fabricate mileage expenses. So if your organization reimburses for mileage, this is a very easy way for people to fudge those numbers a little bit. Maybe they bump it up by a little bit. Maybe they fabricate tip trips that they took. Um, so those are some of the ways that people get away with that kind of fraud. They might also write organizational checks to pay personal bills. So if somebody has access to the checking account, they may do that. And that's something else to watch out for. And shell company schemes. So this is where somebody might set up a shell company that then they enter into a false contract with your nonprofit and then pay themselves. So let's pretend like there's a and make up a person. Let's say you have a janitor. We'll make up a janitor for your organization. And that person might then set up a shell corporation that um, provides janitorial services or um, something along those lines, something that you would routinely buy. And then instead of actually using funds to purchase the, the needs for janitorial, they will actually spend the money on their own fake shell company, send it to them, and then they will be able to take that money out that way. Now we have financial reporting fraud. This one is typically designed to conceal problems that would otherwise be noticed on the balance sheet. So this is like misclassifying expenses as program to minimize overhead. You know you do this sometimes, some people. It's really easy for us to be tempted to misreport on our financials because nonprofits aren't allowed to have a lot of overhead, which is an issue that actually needs to be addressed head on rather than hiding it. And this, I'm just going to get like really preachy here because I'm in the mood to be preachy. I've been talking to people about rape culture all day, so I'm kind of in like a mood. But kind of speaking of nonprofits and how we have to kowtow to funders, whims, and needs, we absolutely cannot continue booking, cooking our books just a little bit where we're like, oh, well, I did this fundraising activity, but it was on behalf of this program. So instead of allocating it to fundraising because I was making an ask or writing a grant or whatever the case may be, I was doing the work in this program area. And so I'm going to count it as a program. It's not really programmed. Let's not lie to ourselves. The fact is funders have to understand what it really costs to run an organization. If they don't like the fact that you have overhead, then they need to understand what your overhead is for, what it covers, and why it's necessary. And you need to understand that too. It is really unrealistic for organizations to run on 10% of overhead, okay? So let's just get that out of our minds. It's ridiculous. I'll help you eventually to try to change that landscape. But today, we're going to go ahead and say, let's be honest on our financial reporting instead of trying to hide our problems so that we look better to funders or to donors. Next thing we do, sometimes inflate the value of donated goods and services. So if you're adding like an in-kind donation line on your budget um, for your financial reporting, it might be really easy for you to say, you know, the person's time was worth $500 an hour. <laughs> so it looks like you had a lot of income when really it was just an in-kind donation that you inflated the, the price for. You might also gross up certain fundraising events like events or activities like events. So uh, this would be where you put your top line in for the event 
uh, as far as like the income you realize, the revenue. But instead of showing a true accounting for that event specifically, like counting all the hours that you put into it or counting all of the expenses that came with running it, like renting a place or getting the supplies or whatever, you might hide that in your bottom line or in your, sorry, your, your lower line somewhere else. So it might be attributed to program. It might be just hidden in office supplies. It might be somewhere else. It might look like your event really got a lot of money in the door for you, which may be true. But ultimately what really matters as far as your activities for fundraising is your bottom line. That is your revenue, less expenses, that will give you your bottom line. So instead of grossing up your fundraising activities to make your financial reports look better, be really honest in that accounting as well so you know what's actually working and what's not. So I have a couple of examples of fraud that I've heard about. So one was um, an executive of an organization that I used to know and work with who was always wearing sweatpants. I call her the sweatpants executive because she was seriously always dressed as if she was like just rolling out of bed, going to work in the morning. She was completely disheveled, always beleaguered, always complaining that nobody got her or her organization. It was just one of those organizations that was completely mired in scarcity and really just kind of... um, the thing that I like to think of as mission mirroring, where the people who work within the organization are sort of kept in a place that that matches the state of the people's people whose problem they're trying to solve. So people in poverty, for instance, where people are not paid enough and they they look like and feel like and act like the people whose situation they're trying to resolve without actually resolving their own situations. She really looked along those lines and acted that way. And um, well, it turned out eventually that uh, when it came to do an audit, there were millions of dollars missing from this organization. And the only explanation was that this person had over many, many years slowly and quietly been taking money to feed a gambling problem and it totaled over $2 million. This was insane and it blew my mind because I just did not imagine that this person would have done that. I thought she was really, you know, dedicated to the mission and, you know, living on peanuts because she was always in sweatpants and always, you know, complaining that she had no money and things like that. But in the end, that was all just a ruse that kept people from ever having suspicions about her and her um, embezzling habits. The next one that I have is one that I heard of of an organization that's not quite local but but nearby where somebody um, was an executive director of an organization and she disappeared for weeks and was sending emails to people and telling them, you know, answers to whatever questions they had, but not really being super open about where she was or why she was gone. And the staff just continued doing their work. The board continued doing their work. They were there. They were having meetings still. And honestly, the people that worked in that organization didn't understand that there was a real problem until the lights were turned off because they didn't pay any of their bills. The fact is that this executive director had embezzled millions of dollars from a federal grant, which is a bad idea, by the way, uh, and then disappeared to Mexico and had to be extradited and come back and had to come back and be tried through those means. Uh, that was unbelievable. And it is, you know, something that happened in my state. So it was somebody that that could have been connected with other people that I know. But it is really not hard to come up with example after example after example of organizations being completely destroyed by somebody's fraudulent behavior. So it's important for us to understand it. It's important for us to know what to look for. And now I'm going to tell you what to look for. 
there is something called the fraud triangle, which I'm going to include. I'm going to include a whole um, PowerPoint that goes along with this uh, conversation in the show notes today. So you can click on it and you'll be able to find um, the fraud triangle. But basically, it's if you imagine one large triangle that has three sides, of course, we've got one side that is opportunity. One side is pressure and one side is rationalization. And those three things make up the perfect opportunity to commit fraud or the the way that fraud actually happens. So first of all, opportunity is something that you can manage. Opportunity is where somebody sees a hole in your system of accounting or of managing your funds and is able to say, oh, if I take money over here, nobody's ever going to notice. That's opportunity. Rationalization is where somebody makes uh, their actions out to be reasonable. So, oh, I had to do this. It was the only way to save the organization. Or I had to do this because, you know, I had this issue to, to deal with in my my life and the organization really needs me to be okay. So I figure they'll pay for this because it's right. Or even um, I don't get paid enough money and I deserve to get paid more money. So I'm going to take the money this way. Pressure is usually something that's happening in somebody's life that is challenging or putting pressure on them that makes the need for them to do this higher and more urgent. We'll go into more of the into these a little bit more um, in depth. So on opportunity, we have indifferent management. So this could be that your organization doesn't talk about fraud, doesn't think about financial controls, just does what you do. It could be that you don't even have like fiscal policies, which is a huge problem. So if you don't, please get some. I will help you with that if you want me to. Just let me know. You really need fiscal policies and you need people to understand them and follow them. So indifferent management can lead to people having opportunity. They know nobody's watching. They don't care. They're going to do something. Uh, You could also have ineffective monitoring of management. So that would be the board's role. The board of directors is absolutely in charge of oversight of the organization, including financial management. It's one of their main duties. So they need to understand that and they need to be able to have access in to understand how things are actually going in the organization. If they're not monitoring management and management is indifferent, that creates a lot of opportunity for somebody to find a hole in your system and take your money. Another big issue is no separation of duties. If the same person takes the money, puts the, does the books, puts the deposits together, and takes the deposit to the bank, you're in a world of potential trouble. Partly that's because this person is absolutely at risk of being accused of fraud if something were to happen, even if it were an accident, even if it wasn't that person. That's not cool for them, and it's also not cool for you. It also provides the opportunity for that person to be able to take money anywhere along that whole spectrum of, of opportunity. If you have weak internal controls, meaning that you are not watching what happens with your finances, this is another place for opportunity. And I'm going to go into what uh, financial controls look like in just a few minutes. This is pressure. So the next piece of that fraud triangle is pressure. People who have expensive habits, let's say they recently bought a car or they buy like really fancy clothes and, you know, things like that. The expensive habits or or they might have, um, let's say, a gambling problem like the story I just told. Those people are people to watch out for because you're working in a nonprofit, you're not making that much money, you're going to have to find a way to pay for those habits. Um, And so that can put pressure on somebody. If somebody loses their job in that person's family, that can create some pressure as well. Excessive debt creates pressure. So, you know, expensive habits can lead to excessive debt, but this is another place where people will find reasons to take money because they're facing something that's really a big challenge to them and they're under pressure. If they never take a vacation, 
they may be hiding something. This is one of the reasons why one of the important things with like generally accepted accounting principles requires that people take vacation. You might think it's because people are really kind and they just want you to get out there and kick kick back. It's actually because it's important for people to rotate duties or somebody else to take over your processes if you're involved in handling money so that they'll see what's really going on. They'll be able to identify anything that looks like it might be a miss. So this is where um, looking at somebody who takes who never takes a vacation and, and asking yourself why that might be um, is, is really important. Um, and it's also important for you, if you don't take a vacation, for you to remember that it is important for other people to see what you do, what you contribute, and for you to be able to give other people some of those duties when you go. Another pressure thing that puts pressure on people or that indicates pressure is an unwillingness to share duties. This is something where um, it's similar to not taking a vacation where you have to have complete ownership and control over everything you ever do uh, because you know that you're doing something wrong. You might also hear with pressure comp complaints about pay or autonomy or authority. Um, so recently worked with a board who used to have like two, two signers on a check, which is, you know, kind of a control, but then they changed it so that the ED could write whatever checks they wanted and, and buy whatever they needed. And that was because they didn't feel like they had enough autonomy or authority. Well, there are practical reasons to sometimes do to loosen up some of your purchasing policies, but there are also really practical reasons to maintain those policies and make sure that you at least have adequate financial controls in place to protect all parties. So now rationalization. Here are some of the things people tell themselves. I'm just borrowing it. I'm going to just borrow this money. I'll pay it back as soon as X thing happens. Oh, I'm going to have this big gambling one. I'll be able to pay this back soon. Or I'm getting a bonus at Christmas. I'll just take it now. You know, whatever the case may be. The, the other rationalization, they owe me. I work really hard. I don't get paid well. They owe me money. Uh, rationalization, it's good for the, it's the, for the good of the organization. Sometimes people might take money out of one pot and put it in another because they see that, you know, we are losing staff in this department and we need to put it over here, but they don't really run it through the right channels or whatever. Um, there might be other reasons why people trick themselves into believing that their bad management is good for the organization, but that is typically not true. Um, and then the other rationalization is just there is no other way. There's no way around this. This is what I have to do. I cannot find another alternative to this. So consequences of fraud in nonprofits are loss of public support, closure, litigation, sometimes criminal charges, and absolutely your board's liability and reputation are on the line. So it is essential for the board to always understand their, their duty of fiscal management and care. Uh, and for the, the management in the nonprofit to also take this extremely seriously because the consequences are so huge. Financial controls are... Um, I'm going to read you a thing that financial controls are because I think it's such a valuable way to say it. And it is written by the Committee of Sponsoring Organizations of the Treadway Commission framework. It's called COSO Framework. You can find it online. I will also post that link to the show notes. Um, but financial controls are an internal control is a process affected by an entity's board of directors, management, and other personnel designed to provide reasonable assurance regarding the achievement of objectives relating to operations, reporting, and compliance. So this means that you are making sure that the work that you're doing around managing your finances is um, clear and managed under operations, your day-to-day -day work that you're doing, how you're getting money in and out the door, reporting, and compliance, making sure that you're in compliance with federal rules, local rules, laws, and also your funders' uh, requirements. There are five components of internal controls. We have a control environment, risk assessment, control activities, 
information and communication, and monitoring activities. I'm going to go into each of those a little bit more in depth. In the control environment, all of this is from the COSO framework, just FYI. In the control environment, it's important that the board and the management oversees this piece. This is where it's like a top-down thing for the organization to have the absolute top leadership ensure that there is a culture of financial uh, control and high ethics, great commitment to ethic uh, integrity, and that you're preventing fraud from the top down, and that this is then permeated through all levels of the organization. So number one, they have commitment to integrity and ethical values. Two, there's an independent board of directors which oversees the development and performance on all of these financial controls. They um, There are structures, reporting lines, authorities, and responsibilities within the organization that are clearly defined. They are able to attract, develop, and retain staff who all fit into that structure, reporting lines, authorities, and responsibilities, and who manage those responsibilities effectively. Um, and that there's individual accountability for internal control responsibilities. So if there's somebody that's responsible for taking in money, they need to have some accountability attached to that role. So how do they then um, reconcile their cash drawer at the end of the day? Or if somebody is managing the tokens at the farmer's market, how are they counting them in and counting them out and making sure somebody else is also checking on that as you go so that the person who's taking the tokens isn't blamed for something that happens that's wrong and or um, doesn't have the opportunity to take something and then not have to face the consequences of that. So the next piece on controls is risk assessment. This is where the board and leadership clearly specify organizational objectives. This is how we want our finances to be managed and this is what we expect from it. They'll identify and analyze risks, which, it, which is within their system of how they take money in, how they send money out, how they report, whether they're in compliance. They'll also consider the potential for fraud. So looking at their whole system and seeing like, how are we doing this? Where can we do it better? Where are some opportunities that people might find to take money? And where is it practical for us to um, kind of clog that leak? They'll identify and assess significant changes internal and external to the organization that might pose risk. So this would be, you know, internally we're growing, we're doubling in size, more people are going to be handling cash. What are we going to do for that? More training, more oversight, et cetera, et cetera. Or external, uh, maybe they're changing some rules, or maybe some laws are changing, maybe we have to document more things, maybe we have to check where our money is coming from more diligently and things like that. So under control activities, we have select and develop control activities that mitigate risks. So we're now uh, dealing with the risks that we've just identified. We select and develop general control over technology to support achievement of objectives. So depending on your organization, you will have some kind of technology in place that helps you with your financial management. You'll make sure that that is doing what it's supposed to do in order for you to achieve the objectives that you set. And then you'll also deploy control activities with policies and procedures. So identifying what your policies and procedures are on fiscal management will be really important here. And then ensuring that they're at, those things are actually happening. Information and communication now is the next step. You will obtain and use relevant quality information. This is stuff that you will get from your day-to-day -day practices and oversight on your financial management system. You'll internally communicate the information through formal channels, which you will pre-develop before you even launch all of this. And then you'll communicate with external parties as appropriate and as needed, which typically for a nonprofit is gonna be with your funders, um, whether that's a federal funder or a foundation or a donor or someone else. 
And now we have monitoring activities. And this is where you'll select, develop, and perform evaluations. This can be on any part of that process, on the process as a whole, on individuals within the process. And then you'll evaluate and communicate deficiencies to parties who are responsible for taking corrective action. So if you go through and you have an audit, let's say, and you find, oh, wow, there's a huge hole in our system over here where we put in our deposit. So it turns out the same person takes in the money and then prepares the deposit, then takes it to the bank and no one else sees it. We really need to get in there and see what we can do that's practical for our organization based on our size and our capacity in order to, to plug that leak. There are limitations for internal controls. They cannot solve every problem. They don't prevent, prevent every single instance of fraud, but they are very important to have in place regardless. But I will tell you there's some of their limitations. There, sometimes the suitability of your objectives may be out of step with what your capacity is or the size and abilities of your organization. So this is one place that's really important for you to ask yourself lots of questions. What can our objectives be realistically and what risk are we able to tolerate as a result of our objectives sometimes not being what we would like them to be? Human judgment and decision making can be faulty, of course, and is always subject to bias. And so there will be times when you have to take corrective um, action on some of these issues where it comes to how humans are interacting with your amazing system that you built. Uh, errors and other human failures come into play. The ability of management to override internal controls can also be a limitation. So understanding when and where management is able to, to make uh, exceptions for controls as they typically exist uh, and finding a way to maybe mitigate for that limitation. So how can you prevent management from doing that inappropriately? Instead, how can they do that when it's absolutely necessary and then also have some other kind of um, control or accountability in place for that? The ability of management or other personnel to circumvent controls through collusion is another limitation. So if somebody actually does want to defraud the system, they can go out of their way and get other people in on their, their plan to do that um, fairly easily sometimes. And so this is another place to just be aware of and think about and make sure that you're watching out for. And then, of course, external events can happen that will limit your ability to manage your finances. When we're looking at nonprofits, it's really important for us to manage our finances effectively and carefully. And so I want to um, just encourage you to do that uh, when it comes to how you manage your financial management in your organization, that you're thoughtful about it, that you're keeping an eye out for fraud, and that you're always, always understanding the value of managing for fraud prevention and keeping financial controls in place. It protects you, it protects everyone in your organization, it protects your whole organization, it protects your board. So have these things in place so that everybody around the whole table can be trusted and they will not be necessarily um, faced with some kind of accusation that they can't fight against because your internal controls were so bad that they have nothing to fall back on. So let's all be healthy and let's all have some fun with our financial management and fraud prevention and make sure that we actually do it because it is absolutely essential. So take a look in the show notes for access to this PowerPoint that I use to help guide this presentation. Um, I wrote, I did it originally for um, a nonprofit law clinic at the University of Oregon and I've used it there. You can also find it on my website, which I'll provide a link to uh, there and um, you can get some access to additional resources about fraud prevention and financial controls in that PowerPoint. So there are lots of links at the end um, that I use to create this presentation. So thank you so much for listening and please feel free to ask questions or get involved in the conversation at nononsensenonprofit.com in the comments or you can email me at sarai at leannonprofit.com. Thanks so much for listening.